In the name of the living God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. With very few exceptions, most weddings go off without a hitch. However, I've officiated a few where it was apparent that Murphy's Law actually seemed to apply. If something can go wrong, it will go wrong. Like the time when the best man placed the rings inside the coat pocket of his tux, only to discover that there was a big hole in that pocket and the rings fell through into the lining of the tuxedo. And fortunately, one of the groomsmen had a little pocket knife with him and we had to cut through the lining and retrieve the rings. Or the time when the father gave his daughter's hand to the groom who proceeded to turn around, catching his foot in the bride's long train, only to hear this rather pronounced ripping sound as he moved forward. And last but by no means least, while attending a wedding reception at Boone Hall Plantation a couple of years ago, Sarah and I were sitting at a table which was right next to a smaller round table in the center of this quite large tent where the unusually tall seven-layer wedding cake was being displayed. Well, Sarah noted that the cake appeared to be a replica of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. (laughs) Mind you, it had rained all week long and the ground was absolutely saturated. She informed the wedding coordinator about her observation and he told her, Oh, don't worry, ma'am, it'll just be fine. Well, minutes later, the table, the cake and all came crashing to the ground with a thud, and there was cake and frosting strewn everywhere. Well, I share these few brief vignettes with you because in today's gospel, Jesus, along with his mother Mary and his first disciples, were attending a joyous wedding celebration in Cana of Galilee with some family friends. Perhaps Mary was there assisting the family in their preparations of the wedding and maybe even helping to serve. Well, I'm sure that the expectations were running high and no doubt there was also a certain amount of anxiety that went along with all those rather high expectations. I say that because Jewish custom dictated that wedding feasts would go on for anywhere from a few days up to an entire week. And therefore, it was incumbent upon the groom and his family to provide all the necessary provisions for their guests throughout the entire time of celebration. It would have been a serious social faux pas, an enormous embarrassment to run out of either food or drink for your guests. In fact, In those days, a family guilty of this kind of negligence could actually be held liable and even fined or sued for not adequately providing for one's guests. And then it happened. What could go wrong did go wrong. Midway through the wedding feast, Mary came to Jesus and informed Him, they have no wine. We're out of wine. Was it just poor planning on the part of the groom and his family, or perhaps several of the guests had failed to RSVP, and there were more people there than they had ever anticipated? Well, we'll never know for sure. But one thing is certain, and that is that when they ran out of wine, the excitement, the joy, the enthusiasm, the festivities 
we're all about to come to a crashing halt. Sometimes, in a larger, metaphorical sense, the wine does run out, doesn't it? I mean the wine in the wedding feast of life. The sense of satisfaction and celebration runs out when the job is an exciting one, a challenging one, but then there are those long, long periods of boredom when the enthusiasm just seems to disappear. The friendship is strong, but little misunderstandings, differences, and conflicts arise. And stress and pressure are put on the relationship, and then one discovers that it's not the same as it was 10 or 15 or even 20 years ago. The marriage is a good one, or it was a good one, but somewhere along the line, the spark, the passion, the euphoria that began when you were courting seemed to wane and dissipate and eventually simply vanish into thin air and the wine runs out. Your faith certainly sustained you when things were going well in life. However, when a child, a parent, a husband, a wife, a son or a daughter or a best friend dies suddenly, When a biopsy report comes back and the doctor utters those devastating words that shook you to the very core, it's malignant. When the memory began to fade and the diagnosis was early onset to dementia or Alzheimer's, when you discovered that your child was secretly using drugs or alcohol, When your financial situation took a serious downturn and the fear of running out, running out of resources, set in. When your life took any number of unexpected, unpredictable, unplanned for turns, your sense was the wine has run out. Well, when you begin to look at your life and look around you at the lives of the people you love, when you take account of your losses, your false choices, your failures, your heartbreaks, your regrets, your unfulfilled dreams, and all those unexpected bumps in the road, inevitably, at some point, you may very well look into the mirror reflecting your life and you find yourself saying these words, the wine has run out. And then like Mary, the mother of our Lord, in today's gospel, you're able to muster just enough hope, just enough optimism to say to yourself, but Jesus is here, and he possesses the power to transform all of that into something new and fresh. Today's gospel is telling us that for those whose wine has run out, Jesus is there to change all of that. Not in some Pollyanna sense that everyone will be smiling and skipping through a field of daisies, but in the sense that he has the power to make new wine out of the bland, old, ordinary wine of life. He comes with the message that even though there are a lot of people in this world that are sad and brokenhearted, Even though we may have had one hurt, one disappointment, one misfortune, one crisis after another, 
new life can rise like a phoenix up out of the ashes. And with St. Paul, we can say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus comes to us with what I call the gallow wine principle. Now, this ages me a bit, but some of you may recall that wonderful commercial that Gallo had years ago where their theme was, we will serve no wine until it's time. Well, Jesus' message is just that. Like all good wine in the wedding feast of life, this wine needs time to ferment. Time to become vintage quality. And Jesus has the vintage quality that we need and want and desire. Just waiting for us. If only we ask for it. And if only we have the patience to wait. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. I believe that's one of the key central messages that today's gospel is asking us to appropriate. To have patience, to believe that Jesus will come and that he will transform your life and mine, however difficult and complicated they may seem to be, that he will create a change. The question is, do we really believe that our lives need the kind of transformation that Jesus is offering? Do you really believe that Jesus has the power to transform your life. C.S. Lewis once said, see, Brian, you're not the only one who gets to quote him. (laughs) C.S. Lewis once said, this is a really good one too, miracles miracles are a retelling in small letters of the same story that is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. Which is to say that if Jesus could perform the miracle of changing water into wine, he can also perform the miracle of transforming our lives into what he wants them to become. And just how does he do that? How does he do that? Here's how. When the wine of life runs out, Jesus is there to supply more wine in great abundance. And he saves the best for last. So now let's see just how that happens in this story of the miracle of changing water into wine in Cana in Galilee. When the wine ran out, Jesus simply began to go to work with what was available to him. Namely, six stone jars, empty stone jars that had contained water to be used for the Jewish white rites of purification. Mary had the faith and the confidence in her son that he could handle this situation and save her friends from a rather embarrassing moment. Jesus commented to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come, is in no way a disrespectful statement. Instead, it's a point at which Jesus is exerting somewhat of a rite of passage, a coming into his own, if you will. His ministry had just begun in Jerusalem and then moved up to Galilee. Here he finds himself in Cana. Mary understands this and acknowledges his power. So turning to the servants, what does she do? 
She tells them, do whatever he tells you to do. Jesus then tells the servants to fill the jars with water. And they filled them, as you heard in the reading, to the brim. Most commentators estimate that that amount was somewhere between 120 and 150 gallons. And the rest is history. Simple water turns into wine. Former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, described Jesus' miracle in this way. And I love this imagery that he uses. The modest water saw God and blushed. The modest water saw the face of God in Jesus Christ and blushed. The water turned into wine, but not just any wine. The good wine, the best wine, the best wine, far better than any of the guests had had when they first arrived at the wedding feast. In fact, when the sommelier tasted the water now become wine, he called the bridegroom and said, what gives? What's this all about? Every man serves the good wine first, and when the men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. I don't understand. Well, I want us to step back for a moment and take a closer look at the meaning of those six stone jars and the Jewish rites of purification. Because there's something deeper, there's something more important here for us to understand than meets the eye. The Jews of Jesus' day were absolutely obsessed with ceremonial cleanliness. These six stone jars held water for their ritualistic washings. Jewish law required that hands be ceremonially washed before every meal. In Mark's Gospel, we read that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. Jesus denounced the purification rites of the priests and Pharisees, which in his day had become hopelessly burdensome. The problem was that their traditions involved no inward cleansing from sin. No inward transformation of oneself, one's whole being. The emphasis was only on some pious outward show of religion. More than hygienic measures are needed to cleanse one's life and enable one to enter into a right relationship with God. The psalmist says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Jesus often spoke about the condition of our hearts and their need to be cleansed. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And then, of course, the one that many of us know almost by heart is, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, fornication, adultery, theft, and so on. I like how William Barclay describes this when he writes that The six stone jars stand for all the imperfections of the Jewish law. Jesus came to do away with the imperfections of the law and to put in their place the new wine of the gospel of his grace. You may recall that at the Last Supper, Jesus said to his disciples, Now you are clean 
through the word which I have spoken to you. And then, of course, he summarized his whole teaching on purity in one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. For the Jews of Jesus' day, all of those repeated rituals of cleansing were simply an an outer washing, but they lacked the one thing needful that only Jesus could provide, an inward washing, a spiritual washing, a cleansing on the inside. Through His one perfect sacrifice, His one oblation of Himself once offered, Jesus is able to completely cleanse, justify, and make right those who come to Him through faith. His all-atoning sacrifice is the only way we can enter into a clean and right relationship with God. Though your sins are like scarlet, Isaiah says, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, this is our rite of purification. We are purified in heart, body, mind, and spirit when Jesus gives His own body into death, death on a cross, for our inward cleansing. Jesus sheds His own blood to purchase your forgiveness and mine. This is how our hearts are made clean. This is how God pronounces that we are forgiven by Jesus' offering up of His life for us, for our sins, and for the sins of the whole world. Friends, we need the purification that only Jesus can provide. Our sins will always condemn us. There's no way that we can wash them away on our own. The Pharisees tried to do that and they failed miserably. The only cleansing that works is the cleansing that comes through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. With St. Paul we say, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But God, but God is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm going to ask you to use your imagination this morning. Have you ever wondered what kind of a sermon Jesus might have preached to the people attending the wedding at Cana immediately after he turned the water into wine? Perhaps he would have told them that the world's joy will inevitably run out and that it cannot be restored but that the joy that He gives is ever new, ever satisfying, and everlasting. Perhaps He would have told them that the world offers the best of everything at first, but then, once you get hooked, things don't always go the way that you want them to. Perhaps He may have even told them that He continues to offer that which is the very best, the most enduring, the most abundant joy that one could ever possibly imagine and that one day we shall all enjoy the finest blessing of all, the blessing of His eternal kingdom, eternal life, life forever with God. 
Should the wine ever run out in your life, Jesus will always be there to provide the very best wine. You see, he saves the best for last. The best is always yet to come. And might I add, in great abundance. Do you recall his promise? John 10, verse 10. I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So please don't despair. Don't despair. The miracle can happen again as the muddied waters of our lives, our guilt, our shame, our sin, our habitual failures, our disappointments, are transformed by the crucified and risen Christ into the new wine of forgiveness and victorious living. God is always there. Always there in the person of Jesus Christ to redeem you, to restore you, to fill your life with inner peace and joy, to create a new and clean heart within you, and to give you the hope of glory. Let us pray. Dear Lord, when it seems as though the wine of life has run out, You are here to create that which is new, that which is the best, vintage quality, and in great abundance. Purify our hearts, O Lord. Create in us clean and new hearts. And enable us to serve You in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.